This morning is a fun morning for me. Um, one of the first sermons that I ever preached at, at the, the church I attended before Village, uh, I was a young, young man and just starting to preach. One of the first sermons was on the book of Philemon. And um, I tried to go back and get my notes. Unfortunately, we didn't have things like word processors and computers. And if we did, it would have been on, on these big five and a quarter inch. You remember those floppies? And so, what was that? Yes, exactly. At least it wasn't on punch cards, but um, that was college. But, and, and so, th- this book has a special place in my heart. It was probably the most influential book for me in how to deal with people, in how to interact with people, how to handle difficult situations. Um, as I went through my years as a young man, I, I had a very different way and a, a different way of approaching conversations and approaching information that I thought people needed to know, and imparted that with great gusto and, and firmness and, and attackingness at times, and was wondering why that didn't usually work and why people weren't changed. And as I read through the book of Philemon, I saw a very different way of approaching teaching very different way of approaching people, and it was life-changing for me in how to influence people, how to influence people for Christ, how to disciple people, how to bring people along in a way where they are growing and they are learning rather than just like machines following what is said. One of the best-selling self-help books, can you guess what it is? Who said it? Somewhere, somewhere back there. How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. First published in 1936. It sold 15 million copies worldwide. In 81, it was revised and reprinted. Not advocating the book. I haven't actually read the book. But it's interesting that that, How to Win Friends and Influence People, is the best-selling self-help book. The best-selling book of how we can, can make a difference in people's lives. And when we think of discipleship, we're talking about making a difference in people's lives. We're talking about affecting their very souls and drawing them in in a loving relationship to our Lord and Savior and seeing how that radically changes their lives. Some of the things, the, the main topics of that book, 12 things this book will do for you. Fundamental techniques in handling people. Six ways to make people like you. Woohoo! Twelve ways to win people to your way of thinking. Always a plus. Be a leader. How to change people without giving offense or arousing resentment. And that's the category that, interestingly enough, he gives nine points. And and I didn't take any of the points from the message out of that. In fact, I, I didn't even refer to this as I was going through the book of Philemon and watching the example of Paul. But I wonder if Dale Carnegie, and I don't know the man, I don't know whether he was a believer or not, but I wonder if he didn't get some of these things from the truths of Scripture. Begin with praise and honest appreciation. Call attention to people's mistakes indirectly. Talk about your own mistakes before criticizing the other person. Ask questions instead of giving direct orders. Let the other person save face. Praise every improvement. Give the other person a fine reputation to live up to. Use encouragement. Make the faults seem easy to correct. And make the other person happy about doing what you suggest. It's always a a trick. But it's interesting because two-thirds of those we see Paul practicing, not because he read the book. Paul was before the book. But because he was applying biblical principles of relationships and biblical principles that followed the example of Christ and how God deals with us. Last week we looked at the first seven verses. And we looked at three foundations for, for forgiveness and for reconciliation. And we looked at three examples of, of how Paul was dealing with Philemon. And those are the two different relationships that we want to continue to look at this morning. Paul and Philemon. Paul is discipling this man that he had, had brought to Christ. And he's discipling him through a very difficult and sticky situation. Filled with anger, filled with resentment, filled with bitterness and hurt but one that if handled the wrong way could tear the church apart. And so Paul is coming alongside him to disciple him on this difficult situation. So that's relationship one that we want to look at, just like last week. 
And the second relationship we want to look at is the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. If you remember, Onesimus is the slave that stole a bunch of money from his master and ran away, ran to Rome about a thousand miles away. And through God's hand, he met Paul. (laughs) And, And God changed his life with the gospel because Paul was willing to share it. And so as we look at that relationship, we'll look at principles of reconciliation, principles of forgiveness. What is Paul encouraging Philemon to do? What in every one of his steps is he preparing Philemon to do without hammering, without bludgeoning him, but instead bringing him along to a conclusion? Let's turn to Philemon in your Bibles. Turn with me to Philemon as we look at a model for how to deal with people. And the, the main points will be that model between Paul and Philemon, a model for how to influence people spiritually, how to disciple people. We can learn so much from this masterfully written book by Paul, letter by Paul. Philemon, and we'll start at verse 8 this morning. And if you notice, the points sort of continue from last week. Point number one is really point number four in your notes. That is not a typo. It's because one through three are the points from last week of how Paul dealt with Philemon in verses one through seven. He, he showed that he cared for Philemon and, and he was willing to express it. Secondly, he prayed for Philemon regularly. Third, he learned the art of appreciation and started there as he shared what he appreciated about Philemon. All of that wasn't empty flattery. Some people have said, oh, Paul's just buttering him up. He's lying to him to get his way. No, no, Paul found real, genuine things that were in his heart toward Philemon. And so this morning we pick up at number four. Read with me verses eight and nine. And we'll see now this is the heart of the letter. This is where Philemon begins to come, or Paul begins to come into Philemon's life and bring him along to a conclusion. Verse eight. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. The first point, or the fourth point rather, is Paul chose to appeal rather than command. Appeal rather than command. And if we are going to influence people long term and not short term, will be people that appeal to them, that bring them along rather than command them. A couple of words there as we break through, as we work through the verses. Accordingly, some of your translations may say therefore. And that's a word that says this is directly tied to verses 1 through 7, which is why we went ahead and spent a week on 1 through 7, because Paul was setting up the tone of what he wanted to tell Philemon. And that tone, especially at the end, was Philemon was one that cared for the saints, refreshed the saints, that loved the saints, this tone of appreciation. And so Paul starts verse 8 by saying, therefore, or accordingly, just like you've been doing, now let's put that into practice into another situation. He says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you, Bold enough. An interesting phrase there. The word has a couple of different meanings, both that are are here. The first is to openly and boldly express your opinion. To openly and boldly express your opinion. And Paul is saying, you know, I have the right to just put it out there. To say, this is what I think, this is what you need to do. But Paul has enough wisdom to know that that's rarely the wise way to go. That's rarely the godly way to go. And so he says, though I'm bold enough in Christ, though I have that authority, and the second part of this is the aspect of authority. Paul's an apostle. Philemon's a believer at a church that Paul would have spiritual authority over. He would have every right to come in and say, you must do this. But that would not accomplish anything. It may accomplish what Paul wanted in this situation, but it would not accomplish anything in Philemon's long-term development. That's what we have to remember. We have to think long-term when we're discipling. Yeah, we can force people to do whatever we want. There's all kinds of tricks to manipulate people to do what we want. But that is not God's way. It's not what Paul's doing here. He's saying, I I could command you. I could put my opinion out there. But I'm not going to. We're going to talk through this. We're going to work through this. 
says, I, I am, although I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Interesting phrase for love's sake, referring to, he, he doesn't actually give any objects of the love. He just says, for love's sake, for agape's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. And most authors and most people that have studied this passage, and I agree with them, feel that Paul is intentionally being broad with the word love, so he includes our love for God, God's love for us, but also what he's just talked about in verse 7, Philemon's love for the brothers. And Paul is setting up a principle here that love is the guiding factor for how we deal with each other. That love for God, love for each other, is why we can appeal to people and bring them along, even though it's slow, it's harder, it's riskier, because people might not come to the same conclusion, but it's right. See, Paul is presenting that as we come and disciple someone, as we come and even give instruction, it's to be out of a relational mindset, not a positional mindset. A relational mindset out of love for each other rather than positional out of I have the authority over you and so you must do what I say. Paul's choosing not to be dictatorial. He's choosing to relate with Philemon and come alongside Philemon. Like I said, this is risky. It's time-consuming. We live in a society where we want our dinners done in 30 seconds and a little ding and we're eating. And everything has to happen quickly. And so people need to change quickly. People don't change quickly. You don't. I don't. None of us do. And so that's why we, Paul is, is showing a whole different approach for how to influence people, how to bring people along spiritually. See, we want it quick. We don't want the work. We don't want the risk that they might make the wrong decision. And so we're forceful and, and we do whatever we can to turn them. And that just doesn't work. I'm concerned when people flaunt being opinionated. I'm concerned when people flaunt being honest and use that as an excuse to tear at people and to push their thoughts on people and to push people in a direction rather than come alongside people. It's a different mindset and one that I believe if we're going to be a discipling church, we must change to. So I ask you to consider that. A proverb says, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Catch that? Let me repeat that. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. If we're discipling people, if we're bringing people along in a walk with God, it's about convincing them. It's about leading them, not just some action that we have desired. Now, some of you may be saying, okay, so we never speak the truth. What about speak the truth in love, Ron? And that's the other side of this. There is a time to command. There is a time to address things. And in Paul's life, if we're, if we're going to stay with his example, where we usually see that come into play are situations of open sin in 1 Corinthians and in Galatians and situations of hypocrisy or someone that is falsely leading other believers astray those situations are, fall into a different category where the apostolic authority should come into play and step in, just like our elders here. If someone is teaching a false doctrine, they will step in and they will stop that. But then as they disciple that person, they may take the long-term approach and work to, to convince them. And so the two have to go hand in hand. There is a time and a place. But we should go there with fear and trembling if we're going to use position as our authority or command. We should seek input and advice first before we go there. So Paul's example in 8 and 9 and actually throughout this whole passage is one of appealing rather than commanding. I'm bold enough in Christ to command you, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. 
throughout your notes, you'll see, you'll see little um, sentences that say reconciliation principles. Whenever you see that, that's jumping to the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus and saying, okay, what is helpful? Why, why is Paul even telling Philemon this? And he's trying to accomplish something and lead Philemon along in his relationship with Onesimus. And the first reconciliation principle there is we need to forgive because of love for God and His body. Forgive because of love for God and His body. Just as Paul is saying, I'm not going to exercise my apostolic authority over to you, I'm going to appeal to you because of love, I'm asking you to do the same thing for Onesimus. Look at how much God loves you. How much you love Him. And that should be the reason for your forgiveness. Not because I'm telling you, Philemon. Not because I'm telling you. And so Paul already is setting the stage for the reason Philemon should, should welcome Onesimus back. And it's not because of Paul's command, it's because of love. Principle number five, or point number five of how to influence, how to disciple others. Speak well of fellow saints. Speak well of fellow saints. See their growth and worth. See their growth and worth. Let's look at verses 10 through 13. And watch what Paul is doing. Onesimus is probably the one delivering the letter. Up until now, his name hasn't even been mentioned in the letter, interestingly enough. And and he's there shaken in his boots. How am I going to be received? Whether or not Philemon even is is thinking that direction. But the, the letter comes and we're reading it. Now we get to 10 through 13. Paul says, I appeal to you, to Philemon, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Powerful letter of recommendation. I'll take that. And Onesimus is there. Onesimus might be hearing this for the first time as the letter is read in the household. And look at what Paul is doing there. The first thing he does is he shows Onesimus' change in spiritual direction. He shows his growth. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And what Paul is saying there is, I met Onesimus while I was in prison in Rome. He came in and he heard the gospel and he accepted Christ. And so I became his spiritual father. So his position spiritually is different than when he left you, Philemon. It's different. And so he's speaking of his spiritual growth and, 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 and commending him to someone else in the body. And if we're to have any influence spiritually with each other in discipleship, we need to be men and women that commend each other. That speak well of each other. Think of some of the words that are used in verse 10 and throughout the book. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. That's an endearing term, not a belittling term. It's one that says, I care about him, whose father I became in my imprisonment. The child-parent relationship is used as the imagery, and it's a strong imagery that talks about the power of discipleship, and that it's more than just let's get together. It's a family imagery that says, I take you into my family. I watch out for you. I protect you. And so he's caring for Onesimus. Verse 11 goes on, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And Paul here still con- continues to be sensitive to Philemon. Rather than just blow him away, he's, he's bringing him along unto where Onesimus is. And this is something that we miss in English, but the word Onesimus means useful. Okay, so, so the name Onesimus means useful. And in fact, it was a pretty common name for, for slaves or bond servants. And sometimes bond servants would change their name to that as they, they were slaves to try to help their masters understand just how useful they were. So that way, every time they called their name, they were saying, you're useful, you're useful, you're useful. And so understand that, read verse 11 now again. 
formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And, and in, the, in the Greek, that would have been like a chuckle moment. For us, it's like, okay, I don't really get where you're going with it. But for them, that would have been, oh, he, he's using the word useful, and his name means useful, and then he's not useful because he ran away, but now he's saying he's useful again, and he's living up to his name again. I love how Paul interjects a little bit of humor in a difficult situation. A little bit of humor to, to break the ice, to bring home a message. See, what Paul is doing there, and in verse 12 and 13, he is expanding on Onesimus's worth. His worth. He's useful for the kingdom. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you Sending my very heart. Again, an endearing word. Do you remember where we saw the word heart last week? Verse 7. Just look back at verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And, and again, we miss some of this in English, but that word for heart is a different word in the, in the Greek for heart, splanknon, that isn't cardia, which we usually would use, and refers to the, the depth of our spirit and the depth of our emotions. And so Paul here uses a rare word because he's tying, masterfully tying several verses together. In verse 7, Philemon, you've encouraged the hearts of the saints dearly. Now in verse 12, Onesimus is dear to my heart. Onesimus has my heart. And we're going to see a third time that comes up in Paul's actual request when Paul says, okay, if, if you encourage other hearts and he's dear to my heart, what should you do to him? And so he's masterfully bringing Philemon along a path to understanding what God would have him do. Verse 13, I would have, him, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Onesimus is faithful now. In fact, he was serving Paul under house arrest. When you're under house arrest, you can't go out and buy your groceries. You can't do a number of things around the house. And so it looks as if Onesimus filled that role. And he was going out and buying things and meeting needs and cooking meals and just the normal daily things that he was doing to serve Paul. And Paul here refers to his relationship with Philemon and says, I, I know that you would have helped if you could. But look at this. Onesimus was able to help in your place, on your behalf. I know that's what you would have wanted. And so Paul here, as he leads up to the actual request, takes the time to speak well of Onesimus. Takes the time to point out his growth. Takes the time to point out his worth. Paul could have taken a completely different tact. He could have said, you know what? You're right, Onesimus was a jerk. He stole your money. That was not right. That was out of line. And you know what? Even though he's a jerk, you need to be magnanimous and reach out and forgive him. It's not what Paul says here. Paul is saying, let's change our thinking about each other. He's growing in the Lord. He accepted Christ. He's worth so much to the kingdom. The steps on, on my toes at times. Because what is the opposite of what Paul is doing here? What is the opposite of speaking well of fellow saints? Criticizing fellow saints. Being critical. And and so often we resort to that as we deal with each other and our minds naturally go there because, because sin is just ever crouching at the door. And so we say, well, they could do this better or they shouldn't have done this. Or, and, and we say these things that are critical of each other that completely destroy our ability to influence each other for Christ. Because as we criticize each other, that's coming from a place of pride. That's coming from a place 
of trying to boost ourselves up that we know more or that we somehow can put them down. What's interesting is I have never in all my years of ministry seen someone with a critical spirit be able to influence others for the kingdom. I've never seen it happen. People avoid them like the plague. And so if we want to disciple, if we want to influence each other for Christ, we've got to get rid of the criticism. We've got to get rid of the statements of they should do this, stop shooting people. And we need to come to a point of seeing what God is doing in their lives and speaking well of them. There was a young musician that gave his, one of his first concerts and it was very poorly received by the critics. But the famous Finnish composer, Sibelius, was there. Which I don't know a lot of his work, but I'll take their word for it. And he came alongside this young musician and, and consoled him and patted his back and said, Remember, son, there is no city in the world where they have erected a statue to a critic. Point well stated. Will we be a people that influence each other for Christ? If so, we've got to drop criticism and speak well of each other to people's usefulness for the kingdom, to their worth. Reconciliation principle there. What is Paul doing? What is he, he doing for Philemon? He's helping Philemon transform his mind. And I would encourage you, if you have someone that you're struggling with, interpersonally struggling to forgive, write down how that person is growing in Christ. Write down their worth to the kingdom. Begin to change your mindset. And then begin to, to order your mind and take charge of your mind and read that every day. Read that every five minutes if you have to. And let's change our mindset about the very people that we struggle with. Appeal rather than command. Speak well of fellow saints. And then verse 14. We see principle number 6. Let's read verse 14 together. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent. Paul just said, I'd love for Philemon to stay with, Onesimus to stay with me. He's doing a great job. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your, but of your own accord. And I read that and think, wow, that is really taking a chance. But point number six there is give others opportunity to do what is right on their own. Give others opportunity to do what is right on their own. Now that implies that they have opportunity to do what is wrong on their own too. But Paul here is giving Philemon that opportunity because that is how you respect each other. And so he's being sensitive. He's showing respect. He says, you know, I wouldn't keep him without your consent. I just wouldn't do that to you because this is your call. This is your decision. I'm going to share what I think God's Word says, but it's your decision, your call. And so Paul is treating Philemon as a thinking man instead of a piece of property. What an example for how Philemon should treat Onesimus. And this principle of voluntarism here, the voluntary consent is huge in spiritual development to where people begin to obey by their own decision rather than by coercion. It's the same transition that happens moms and dads with our kids as they get older. We at some point want them to obey because they choose to obey, right? To obey God, to follow God because that's their decision. If they're 30 and they're still obeying because that's what mom and dad want them to do, we've failed. We haven't trained them to love God and follow God. And that's what Paul is showing with Philemon here. I'm not going to do it without your consent. I don't want it to be by compulsion. I want it to be out of your own accord, your own choice. Do you see the middle of that verse? In order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. Again, Paul is masterfully weaving verses together. Back in verse 6, 
If you look back in verse 6, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for full knowledge of every good thing. Same word is used. And Paul here is referring back to that. and says, remember, I want you to get to know God experientially. I want you to experience the goodness he has for you. Here's how. By obeying, not under compulsion, but of your own accord. Service should be willful and joyful, not under compulsion. It's not an excuse not to serve. There's a balance on every one of these. It's not an excuse not to serve. Oh, I don't feel like it, so I'm not going to serve. There are times we obey because we know it's the right thing to do. But at the heart of that should be because of our love for Christ. Our love for Christ. And Paul gives him room to fail. What if he sends Onesimus back and Philemon says, you know what? That's great what Paul said, but you've got to learn a lesson. All my other slaves have to learn a lesson. Let's, let's let the beatings begin. What if that had happened? And that's sometimes what drives us as parents. What if our kids fail? Oh no. What if they fail? And we're missing half of the teachable moments of life when we take that approach. Because no matter which way this goes, Paul has an opportunity to disciple. If Philemon follows what he's saying and and treats Onesimus with forgiveness and reconciliation, maybe even frees him, then praise God, God's love is shown to the whole church. If Philemon fails, if Philemon takes a path that doesn't do that, then now Paul has a teachable moment. Now an issue of the soul is exposed that Paul has an opportunity to deal with. Either way, it's a, it's a teachable moment. Moms and dads, don't be afraid of decision opportunities. Don't be afraid to give your kids a chance to fail. But be there and teach if that happens. Principle of reconciliation. Choose to reconcile for your own walk with God. Choose to reconcile with someone that has offended you for your own walk with God because of your own walk with God. It's an opportunity, as we said last week, to understand God's goodness in a new and fresh way. Paul appeals rather than commands. He speaks well of his fellow saints. He gives others the opportunity to do what is right on their own. And point number seven, he points others back to God's hands of providence. He points others back to God's hand of providence, especially in the difficult things Read verses 15 and 16. This is just wonderful where Paul goes with this. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted with you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And so Paul here doesn't assume that he understands God's ways but he points back to that God always has a plan and God is executing His plan. For this perhaps is why He was parted with you for a while. And and the the verb there for was parted is what we call a passive verb. And a, a passive verb is something that happens to you that you don't actively do. Does that make sense? So if someone hit me, that might be a passive thing. If I hit someone else, that's an active verb. And so here Paul uses a a passive form of the word that says he was parted from you. He stole from you. It was nothing you did. It was something that blindsided you. But God was exercising his sovereignty through this, his providence through this, to accomplish something much bigger than whether or not you had someone to serve your table. He was accomplishing bringing another soul into eternity with Christ. And that trumps it all. And that trumps everything. And so Paul says he was parted with you for a while. Temporary, temporal verb or word there. That you might have him back forever. Yes, you've suffered here temporarily. But the eternal consequences are fantastic. 
And Paul, so he, he talks about the sovereignty of God. That God can overrule sin and will overrule sin and what Satan intends. We think of verses like Romans 8.28 and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And the good there isn't how I define good, it's how God defines good. Eternally and for His glory. And so Philemon might be thinking, I don't know that this was good for me. I was robbed. I had someone leave that I trusted. I was betrayed. And Paul here is saying it was for God's good. It was for God's good. A great example of this is Joseph in the Old Testament. As Joseph went through a whole number of things that weren't his doing, and he was treated and mistreated and beaten and sold into slavery and put in jail, and just about every bad day thing you can think of happened to him. And in Genesis 50, 20, as he's reconciling with his brothers, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And there in verse 16, Paul presents Philemon as a beloved, a loved brother. A picture of the gospel that he's been redeemed from being a slave to sin and is now a brother. And as we're hurt and as we're offended, as things happen to us we don't understand, we have a choice. Do I get angry about it? Do I get bitter about it? Do I, do I focus on what I'm not getting? Or do I focus on what God might be doing? Because He is doing something, whether we see it or not. He is executing His plan, whether we understand it or not. It's never an issue of, if I can figure out what God's doing, then he'll work. No, he's working, and the blessings come as we figure out what he's doing. The reconciliation principle there is look for ways God can use a hurt for his glory. Look for ways that God can use an offense for his glory. Finally, point number eight, we finally get to the appeal. We finally get to what Paul is asking Philemon to do, or at least generally asking Philemon to do, because Paul has been very tactfully and sensitively bringing him along. So point number eight, come alongside to give godly instruction. Come alongside to give godly instruction. Now, there are times where this step never happens because we're scared of this step sometimes. But this is part of influencing others. All of these things that come from love and care do result in instruction. And so in verses 17 through 20, Paul makes his request. He gives instruction. He says this needs to be resolved. And he tells them how it can be resolved. So if you consider me your partner, and and the word for partner there is again a a derivative of koinonia, um, a partner in the ministry, If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me your own self. Yes, brother, I I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And so Paul here comes alongside with still using words like partner and, and coming alongside and being willing to make reconciliation and willing to be a peacemaker. He's coming alongside to give godly instruction, not commands, but instruction. And we see four different instructions out of this passage. I think I have A, B, C, and D in your notes. The first one in verse 17 is to receive him. Receive him. And these are all directly, they all directly apply to the ministry of forgiveness. Ministry of forgiveness. Receive him. Welcome him, some of your your versions say. 
It's the idea of bringing someone into a circle of friends to take in. And so Onesimus is standing here. He's offended Philemon. And Paul says, receive him. Bring him into your circle. Show hospitality. Reach out to him. And we see the the kernel of forgiveness in that command. To let go of what you hold against him and receive him to yourself. Now at this point, no restitution has been made, no reconciliation has been made, because forgiveness is not dependent on that. Forgiveness is different from reconciliation, and we confuse the two, and at times we use forgiveness as this overarching term that that means both. But it's important that we distinguish that. I have a little fun little diagram in your notes, and and Don, if you could put that up. with Then we won't put that up. But you see off to the bottom right of your notes, and and I'll just pretend like it's up there. The bottom right of your notes is an angry man, right? And so an offense happens. And the bottom left of of the notes, do I have the three pictures in your notes? Okay, people are looking at me like, what? Down to the left, you see someone that has a broken arm. They've been wounded by someone. And so an offense has happened. And forgiveness, in, in the Greek New Testament, the word for forgiveness has two different meanings depending on your relationship with the person. If you are in a position of authority over the person, it means to pardon, to release, to mark paid in full. Now, when it comes to sin issues, who is the only one that can pardon? God. You and I cannot pardon someone's sin because we didn't die on the cross for them. We didn't pay the price. It's not possible. And so that form of the word is always used of God's relationship with man and and always used with reconciliation, which is why it gets so confusing where there's repentance and reconciliation. But the same word for forgiveness is when it's applied to us to each other means to release or to hand off, to transfer a debt. And and you see the picture of God there, well, the, the, the little cloud for God. How do you put God in your notes? Um, and what what the, the, the Greek idea of forgiveness person to person the, the, that the church was teaching was that you transfer that debt to God and you release it from yourself. You see that in Romans 12. You see that on with Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. No reconciliation, no repentance, but forgiveness can still happen because it's a one-way thing. Forgiveness, the opposite of forgiveness is staying angry, bitter, and bitter at somebody, which are sins. And so if I stay angry and bitter and hold on to an offense, I am sinning. And so forgiveness one to another says, I release that. Now, where we get into trouble is some people say, oh, that means releasing them from the consequences, releasing them from restitution, and what they did was okay. That is not what the the word for forgiveness means. It's releasing my anger and bitterness toward them and transferring it to God because God's the only one with the authority to pardon. That make sense? This would have all been really fun with the diagram. Because I had little colored arrows and things like that. Um, And so... Who is better at dealing with an offense, you or God? God. In fact, in Romans 12, we read that if we hold on to it and try to take revenge ourselves and try to deal with it ourselves, what do we do to God's dealing with it? We stand in the way and we stop it. And so we need to transfer that to God and release that. Now, reconciliation is different, and we, we, we have to understand the difference reconciliation is making things right between two people, restoring relationship. That takes two people. I can forgive someone without them saying anything to me. I can forgive someone that's offended me that I don't even have contact with and I probably still need to forgive. But reconciliation, which is also part of the biblical command, takes two people coming together. It takes repentance. It takes restitution and restoration of that relationship. And so we we need to understand the two. And and I know that the way we use forgiveness in English, we often mean both. And so I I just wanted to clarify how I'm using the terms. And if if you choose to still mean both, that's up to you. But how I'm using the terms is forgiveness is me releasing an offense to God. Reconciliation is when repentance and that relationship is restored. Make sense? And so what we see here is both parts of that. Verse 17 is forgiveness. 
receive him. Let go of your anger, let go of your hurt, bury the hatchet. The problem is, when we bury the hatchet, we usually leave a little bit of the handle out. You never know when you might need that hatchet again. That's not forgiveness. But then read on to verse 18. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And the second point there is find ways to make amends and call it done. Find ways to make amends. This is the restitution side of it, the repentance side of it. Onesimus had no way to pay this debt. He had squandered all the money he had stolen. He had no way to earn it. And so Paul was coming in and saying, forgiveness is great, but reconciliation requires an attempt at at restitution, at repentance. It involves both. And so Paul here, as a discipler, says, you know what, he can't pay it, but I will. Charge it to my account. And in verse 19, he strengthens that by saying, I, Paul, with my own hand, write, with, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. It's the first IOU we have on record. Well, maybe not the first, but it's a written IOU. He writes it with his own hand. This is a promissory note. Keep in mind, this is a, a private promise to Philemon being made publicly. If I stand here and say, you know what, I'm going to pay John uh, $1,000, and I promise you publicly, is there more accountability? Yeah, that carries more weight. No, I'm not promising that, John. <laughs> and so Paul here publicly makes a private commitment to say, I'll help reconcile. There's, there's repentance here. Onesimus is standing before you. But he needs to make things right for that trust to be rebuilt, for that relationship to be rebuilt. And so Paul steps in and says, let me do that. What a picture of Christ and what he did for us. Because of our sin, we have a debt that can never be repaid. That we never have a hope of repaying. And Jesus died on the cross in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice. And he says, charge his sin to my account. I paid for it. And Paul is being an example of Christ to the church. As he had been extended the same forgiveness as he came in and and, and converted after killing saints and killing Christians, and then the church was supposed to receive him, yeah, right. And the church extended forgiveness to him because of Christ paying the debt. See, remember what others have done for you. Remember what others have done for you. That's the last part of verse 19 there. Paul gently and and a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, I think, reminds Philemon of his debt, the debt of friendship, the debt of eternal life that Philemon has to Paul. Because Paul says, remember, you owe me your very life. You're a believer that will now go to heaven because I led you to Christ. And so if you have a debt against someone else, charge it to the bank of heaven, which has more than enough funds to cover any debt that you might have. As we struggle with forgiveness, we need to start thinking, what debts do I owe others? Not physically, but who's invested in my life? Who's built into my my spiritual life? And then D there in verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Focus on refreshing others. And this is where refresh my heart in Christ. Paul is saying, again, referring to verse 7. And then the other verse we saw today, you've refreshed other people's hearts. Onesimus is dear to my heart. Now refresh my heart. Affirm friendship. Bring closeness. And and the word here, we, we can misunderstand. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. If my kids come to me and say, I want that. We're like, do you ask that way? You're not ever getting that now. And we, we do some training with that. But here, it's not that tone. The, the idea is, I wish that you would do this. I desire this. It's, not this. it's not a demand, even still, but it's a desire. And we see Paul bringing reconciliation to the forefront. The cross 
results in reconciliation. We cannot claim reconciliation with God by the cross if we're not willing to reconcile with each other. And Paul drives his point home, but in a tactful way that he has brought Philemon along to a conclusion instead of ordered him. In points 9 and 10, just looking at how Paul ends this is fascinating. Verse 21, Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. So point number 9 there, if we're to influence other people, believe the best and express confidence. Believe the best and express confidence. Paul doesn't spell out whether he wants him to release Philemon, whether he wants him to send him back. He's saying, do what's right before God. I know you will. I remember Dad leaving, leaving me to do something at home and saying, son, I know you're going to do what's right. No, Dad, don't say that. <laughs> do you know the pressure that that puts on me? That's what Paul says. And he trusts him. And he expresses confidence. The reconciliation principle there is assume the best in people, not the worst. Assume the best in people, not the worst. When, we're, when we've been offended, when we're hurt, our minds go to the worst. And we interpret everything they do as further offense. Stop it. Assume the best, not the worst. And then point number 10 there, offer unconditional relationship. Offer unconditional relationship. Paul ends by now opening up, going back to the plural, talking to the whole church, and he says at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. He's affirming their prayers. He's affirming that he wants to visit. He wants to come back. And then verses 23 through 25, he gives final greetings. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Two weeks ago, Pastor Andrew did a great job of expanding on every one of those names. I don't need to do that again today. It's the same list. Letters written at the same time. But reminding people of relationship. I encourage us to be men and women that influence each other for Christ. That change how we deal with people, how we speak to people, how we speak about people how we motivate people, how we bring people along rather than order them. Because I know that this is a discipling church. And I'm excited to see what God does as we disciple each other in the months ahead. In two weeks, we'll be talking about discipleship again. Looking forward to that.